Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Greece and the future of Europe. So, Richard, we're seeing another round of negotiations right now in Europe between sort of <laughs> perpetually embattled Greece and its creditor nations, of which Germany is is sort of in the lead. So l- let's start here. Give us Greek economics for dummies. H- how did Athens get to a point where it was this financially imperiled? Well, I mean it's an interesting point because I don't want to give any profound e- macroeconomic explanations, all of which turn out to be wrong. What you have to do is to say that this is a nation that lived beyond its means for the simple reason that it thought it could get its co-partners in the European own Union to essentially pay for its luxury. But what happens is this is always at best a zero-sum game. Every dollar that is transferred to Greeks from somewhere else is a dollar that's taken from somewhere else. And even if you ignore the um, incentive effects, it means that there's no useful thing going on. All transfer payments have that characteristic. Uh, Why do they live beyond themselves? Um, The explanation, I think, is pretty clear, is that if you have a situation in which the popular democracy is influenced by people with strong socialist and egalitarian ideals, what they will do is they will regard production and competition as bad things to be suppressed, wholly without regard to any bailout considerations. They think, in effect, like the New York Times, at a minimum wage law or a union structure is a growth piece. So they think they're doing their growth numbers. It turns out they're, shall we say, uh, sadly misinformed, as it was said in Casablanca. And so they put into place destructive policies. They don't work. They don't want to change them. So they go back to the EU and say, look, you know, you're going to basically fall off the edge of the earth if it turns out that we have to leave the situation. So work out a compromise with us financially so that we can live to fight another day. The folks on the other side look at this situation and they realize that Greeks leaving the European Union has a massive potential for destabilization. So they're always willing to compromise. But when you have a net deficit, let's say, of you know, 10 or $20 billion, a compromise could be anything from writing off 10% of the debt to writing off 90% of the debt. And obviously, the two parties on the opposite side of that transaction will have very different views. This means that you play showdown poker. In the end, it's not in the interest of either side uh, uh, to basically have the whole thing fall apart. So what you do is you give a partial bailout, have promises for reforms, all of which are very nebulous, and then wait for the cycle to repeat itself. The uh, basic mistake here was making this into a monetary union. It should have been just a free trade zone, and we could talk about that more if you'd like. And we will, but up front, I want to ask you about the prospect you just raised, sort of how you structure it, because you wrote about this topic for Defining Ideas at Hoover this week, and I want you to explain for the audience something you say towards the top of your piece there, um, quoting you here. In dealing with bailouts of this sort, financial gurus unduly rely on macroeconomic principles. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, most of these people turn out to be Keynesians of one form or another. And so what they're doing, instead of thinking of this as a very difficult bargain uh, between two parties on the analogy to a difficult bargain that you get in or out of bankruptcy or an ordinary situation, they're saying that the ordinary rules of private business transactions don't apply. We have to worry about aggregate demand. We have to worry about some of the problems associated with the stimulus and so forth. We have to understand that austerity turns out to be a terribly dangerous prospect because it's 
squeezes and starves people. And then they try to infer something from that. And, you know, what they always infer is what somebody like Paul Krugman always infers is that the moment you make this macroeconomic, the moment you say that austerity is a dangerous thing, and then it turns out you have to give more time and you have to take back less money as a creditor. And so what they do is they come up with the wrong short-term prescription because what is typical about macroeconomists is they never think about the nitty-gritty, by which I mean what the rules that govern labor markets actually have something to do with the unemployment rate. The macroeconomist tends to think that the only thing that matters are aggregate stuff, so it's the monetary supply, it's the tax system, and so forth. All of those things tend to take precedence rather than the fact that to open up a new business in Greece is more difficult than robbing a bank and to fire an employee requires that you go through endless layers of work. And if you can't fire people, you won't hire people. To me, this seems to be at the level of a naive, um, self-evident truth. But to the Greeks, it's basically foreign mumbo-jumbo. And it is striking. I mean, you could read Paul... Krugman's columns from one year, one decade to the next, and he never talks about labor market regulation and its impact on employment levels. It's always on these grander stuff. And if you've got the wrong tool looking for the wrong solution, what you'll do is you'll fight austerity, and austerity is not a good thing, but you won't make the necessary structural reforms in the microeconomy, which will allow this thing to right itself. And what's so difficult here is that all of the creditor nations you know, are themselves not particularly capitalistic on labor markets. They have labor regulations that are a minus four instead of Greece, which is a minus eight, uh, which means that they're not going to really want to push them as hard as they should because they're afraid of offending their own union constituencies and afraid of being inconsistent if they should in fact require Greece um, something with respect to labor laws when they won't do it with respect to their own employment laws, which give more protections than they say the Greeks should have. So it becomes very difficult for them to get the reforms because they themselves are suffering genuine stagnation because their own labor laws are crazy. Think about France. Germany's a little bit better, but it's a long way from being an open market. Okay, so Richard, walk me through the considerations here on the on the creditor side. How do Germany and Greece's other creditors find the sweet spot between going too easy on the Greeks on the one hand and going too hard on them in determining the terms of this agreement? Very badly, I think, is the right answer. <laughs> um, what they're trying to do is to basically figure out how much of that debt they can salvage before throwing the other side over the brink. And what's so difficult about it is it's necessarily a probabilistic determination. And it turns out that you know if the Germans say we're willing to take a 20% risk of this thing going sour, the Greeks are not really keen on that, even if they have the same estimate, because a 20% of it going south is much more catastrophic to Greece than it turns out to be to Germany. So uh, they're going to try and get it safer and the Germans are going to try and take a little bit more risk. And since all of these things are done on the back of an envelope to some extent because there are no hard data, uh, it turns out that both sides will be pushing based upon strong intuitions. Neither set of these intuitions can be fully verified. So it's a little bit like stabbing around in the dark. And so Schaubler, the German you know, finance minister, says, you know, we're going to postpone this for four months. It's a short period. You've got to get reforms in the interim. You read the accounts on Reuters and other places, and the reforms are extremely spongy because they don't want to take on the labor stuff. And so uh, they basically are trying to say, we'll take 80 percent, and it turns out the Greeks will say, we'll pay 60 percent. And at that particular point, it's shadow boxing. The 
point about international transactions is that the stakes are larger than they are clearly in domestic transactions. There is no court of last resort, a bankruptcy court that oversees this in any serious ways. And the catastrophic consequences of mistake are even bigger than they are if you muff something like, for example, the reorganization of AIG or GM and so forth. Um, and that's exactly what's happening here. So uh, the stars are not well aligned. I mean, my general sympathies for this are more with the Germans than they are with the Greeks in the sense that I believe that if you just give the bailout and extend new credit, you're going to do exactly the same thing. So uh, the combination of large loans and then semi or large or reasonably large loan forgiveness means that these guys are going to be perpetually on the dole and they'll have no incentive to reform. And it's that long-term prospect that the folks who rail against austerity, people like Paul Kriegman, um, always seem to ignore. They are very much in the static, one-dimensional, one-time period uh, frame of mind. And there are potential social consequences as well beyond economic consequences, right? You mentioned in your column at Defining Ideas, you talk about the situation that Germany found itself in after the, the Treaty of Versailles. I mean, do, do you think that there is a, a prospect that if this is managed badly, you get serious sort of social disruption in Greece? Yeah, well, look, I mean, there's a first of an obvious difference. The Versailles debts were war debts; they weren't commercial debts. Uh, right. But it really did screw everything up because they put such heavy demands that there was no way that the Germans would get a large enough share of the improvement from their own economy to give them the incentive to produce. It also created real moral blindness. Um, uh, one of the things that was so striking about the whole situation inside Germany in the 1930s is that when you know. The Germans are really starting to do terribly anti-Semitic things. Uh, what happens is the American government is still interested in claiming the war debt. And so what Hitler was able to do is saying, well, you know, you don't, don't push real hard on this Jewish question stuff uh, because, you know, we're still willing to think about paying off some larger portion of the Versailles debt. And this went on all the way through 1938. So what it did is it stunk up essentially the political realm. We were afraid to antagonize the Germans on uh, the, is the, the religious and the extermination questions because of the debt. I don't think it's that bad in this case. But look, if it turns out that Greece is kept very hard on austerity. They don't make labor reform. It's going to start looking in a year like Venezuela is beginning to look today. And Venezuela, if you look at the headlines, has now really gone sort of over the top. They, uh, the president, Maduro, is arresting all of the mayors for protest and so forth. The oil production of crappy oil, which makes it all the more important that you have good refineries, that's going to a halt. The, uh, the richest, largest oil reserves in the world are of no value. And the country's about to slip into chaos and into a police state. That could happen. I mean, if in fact, Greece is forced out of the situation. The drachma, when it recalibrates itself, will be at a tiny fraction uh, of what its current euro value is, which means that imports will be colossally expensive and they won't be able to take care of the export market because they won't produce anything of value. One of the other things, of course, that could happen is that Germany might decide to throw this whole thing up, at which point if it goes, the eurozone collapses. And so, as I said earlier, the trade market, the trade arguments were much stronger. If this is just a no-tariff kind of situation. You let currencies float freely and continuously. You don't get these precipitous falls and you don't have this common governance harmonization things which tends to make Europe more socialist than it would otherwise be. Uh, a competitive federalism inside a trade zone is a much superior arrangement to a uniform harmonized requirement run by Brussels bureaucrats who are always trying to figure out ways to expand their control.
That takes us logically to the final question I was going to ask you today, uh, touching on the same point that you brought up earlier, which is the question as to whether this is an isolated incident or a systemic problem, you know, whether the problem is Greece or it's the, the very construction, the very sort of architecture of the European Union. Is At this point, do you regard the European Union as currently constituted as an endeavor that can successfully endure or is this just sort of destined in your mind to, to fall apart? God, I mean, I remember several years ago, I went to speak to people at Goldman Sachs and there were a bunch of other people from other places and it was the first of these cycles. And what happened is we had remarkably close estimates. That is, I thought it was more likely than not to fail, but that the odds of success were very good, say 55, 45. Uh, The professionals in the room who knew more about this than I were 55, 45, more or less the other way. Um, I still think it's hanging on a knife's edge. I still think on balance that the brinkmanship issue is so great uh, that when it turns out that Saritzia and its various ministers, Serpas and so forth, started looking at this thing, they actually backed off. They are now facing all sorts of hell back home from their their hardline Marxists who are saying, what do you mean reform? We already have the idea domestic state. It's very tight, very tense. Um, I would say that the odds of this thing breaking are pretty close to even, but I think in effect both sides will pull back because dual ruin is is really so terrible. But in terms of a bargaining structure, you can't think of a more difficult game than a high-stakes game where there's no clear right or wrong in terms of how much the forgiveness should be and a tremendous antagonism between the two parties, each of which is convinced that the other one is trying to steal it blind. Um, I don't envy these characters. As I said, generally speaking, I think you have to worry about the long-term implications that countenances against austerity, but strongly says that what the Germans have to insist upon is they get rid of all the competitive barriers to entry in virtually every industry that they run, whether it's tour guides or whether it's somebody opening up a haberdashery stock or a paving business. Everything in Greece is permitted from the labor markets to the capital markets and so forth. And unless they change that culture, they will sink even if they stay inside the European Union. What a happy prospect. It is not that at all. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.